Welcome to Regulatory Ramblings. Our guest today has a career that's straddled the fences of finance, technology, and regulation. Our guest today is Donald Day of VDX. He was, until recently, with the SFC. The early part of our conversation with him, we talked about his time at the SFC, his new company, uh, the regulation of virtual assets, uh, Hong Kong's, the robustness of Hong Kong's regime, and uh, really what, what, what the business community needs to know. And with that, Don, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Much obliged. So tell me a little bit about your, your new venture, VDX. I mean, what, what, um, what types of clients do you typically serve? Sure. So we're building a platform. We're currently engaging with the regulator, my former colleagues, to obtain a license to uh, run a virtual asset tr trading platform. And our focus is really on the institutional markets. So our clients would be intermediaries themselves, broker-dealers, banks, as well as in institutional investors like fund managers, asset managers. It's, it's quite a background you've got in, in both finance and computing. I mean, that that I mean, in a real sense, one one could say you're you're a techie who who's been on the business side, and you've also been a regulator. Uh, so, if you bring all that knowledge to bear, what was the moment that caused you to pour, pay more attention to the world of, of, of digital assets, as, as you like to call them. And we'll get into why that is very shortly. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I was COO of a derivatives brokerage. And I met up with a former colleague of mine. We were sitting next to each other at Siganti, at the hedge fund. Um, he had recently come back from um, being a portfolio manager at the Harvard Endowment Fund. And um, I knew he'd come back to Hong Kong, and I was eager to learn what, what his next venture would be. And he then told me he was contemplating setting up a hedge fund in, in, in cryptocurrencies. Um, at that point, I felt I had missed crypto. Uh, mind you, B Bitcoin was trading at 1,300 US dollars at that time. Right. <laughs> and even and then, people thought it was expensive. Absolutely, absolutely. And at that point, I also felt that it was mostly used for illegal activities, if you will. Yeah. And that I... Was the narrative of the last decade. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, but someone like him, who, who has quite a reputation to put his professional career onto this, uh, into crypto, made me look again and get more into the details of the technology and, and what it offers. And the idea was to create a institutional framework, as you know, from other asset classes and bring that as an asset manager into the crypto world. So over lunch, we discussed this, very quickly agreed to work together. I joined him and, and another guy who was uh, responsible for capital raising. Okay. So, and I, I know, you know, you're, you're, you're the first ex-regulator or regulator period that we've had on the show, so this is an auspicious day. Um, tell us about your time at the SFC and what it was like working for the local securities regulator. What was the best or most rewarding part of your job? And in retrospect, what do you think was your greatest achievement while you were there? What, what was the best, what was the greatest thing you you added to that institution sure, sure. your time there? Maybe let me explain why I joined the regulator, because that wasn't 
um, the natural path for me to take. And it wasn't on my career plan at all. Um, so as and when I left uh, Bletchley Park, I had a lot of conversations um, where to go next. And the first conversation with the regulator happened almost by coincidence. Um, former colleague of my wife, we met for lunch uh, and, and had a conversation. And as I was going through the interview rounds, I was very impressed by the people I met. They were highly intelligent. Um, they asked very, very good questions. We very quickly had very engaging discussions. At around the SFC? The, yes. Had very engaging conversations. It showed me they knew, they knew a lot, but other areas they realized they needed um, market intelligence and market experience. And I then sat back and realized that being able to play a role in shaping regulation for a new asset class is not an opportunity you get very often in your life. The second part is that when we launched Bletchley Park, um, we had a very good setup and the setup would still work to this day and would get a license to this day. Um, the issue was obviously timing, 2017 tail end, 2018 wasn't the greatest time to raise money for such an invest, um, venture. And I went back to a lot of the asset allocators where we all got into the final round. They all said, we love you. But a lot of them did pull the trigger and asked them why. They all had various different reasons, but the number one reason was always the same, the lack of regulatory clarity. Locally. So, yeah, globally. Globally. Um, so I felt that if I could play a role in that, that should be quite satisfying. It should also be quite valuable and should also enable me to make connections to regulators around the world. So that's sort of the reasons why I joined the SFC. Well, it's a highly regarded regulator and uh, they do maintain regularly, regular contacts with their colleagues in the EU and UK and US. So I, I can only imagine the contacts you made uh, while, while, while there. While there, you also authored the VT, VATP terms and conditions to give input to VAFM terms and conditions, and you wrote the rule book on how to supervise virtual asset funds as well as virtual asset platforms. What, what, can, you, what can you tell us about uh, what compelled you to do that at that time and uh, what a challenge it was because you were breaking new ground. That is probably uh, one of the things I'm really proud of that, that, that to being part of that and, and all the hard work that the colleagues did to, to bring that to fruition. So at the time I joined, there was still certain doubt whether a securities and futures regulator could actually or should regulate cryptocurrencies. The, the SFC, as you know, is mandated by the SFO, the Securities and Futures Ordinance, which was written in 2003. So obviously there is no reference to cryptocurrencies. And it's very specific and it describes in great detail what a security and what a future is. And crypto is neither. So there were some people who opined that a securities and futures regulator should not be involved in crypto. But the majority of the um, people in charge felt that crypto as an asset class was here to stay and that not doing anything was not an option. And at the time, of course, Hong Kong was seen as 
one of the global centers of cryptocurrencies and a lot of entities were at least seen oh, emerging, or perceived. Emerging. Yes, yeah, yes, emerging yes. And a lot of the entities were, were seen or perceived to actually at least be in Hong Kong. And at the time, of course, you also had, remember 2018, 2019, there were a lot of ICO scams, people lost money. Um, so the regulator felt, well, we need to do something. Um, so the challenge was now to understand how to translate the requirements of other asset classes into the area of digital or virtual assets. So how do you take the requirements for AML, KYC, but also market surveillance, custody, cybersecurity, risk management, and others, and transport them into the area of virtual assets? And that's, I think, a key, and, and I know we'll come back to this question later, but at that point, uh, the responsible people took a, um, a very good but also difficult decision. So what, what does a regulator do? If you want to condense it, a regulator protects investors, such that investor assets aren't stolen, that investors, when they trade on the market, they're not dis at a disadvantage to other market participants as a fair and transparent market, and that assets that are in custody remain in custody. Um, a lot of other jurisdictions at the time decided to take a more light-touch approach to, to regulation. They said, well, AML and KYC is probably enough. Whereas the regulator in Hong Kong decided on a comprehensive framework to really focus on investor protection. But that's more challenging. It'll take more time. You have to work out more details, unlike, unlike what Dubai has done. Absolutely. So that took a long time, as, as you alluded to, that took a long time to create um, a lot of people internally needed to give input and were needed to, in a way, combine the traditional approach and the technicalities and then the trading aspects of, of digital or virtual assets and then identify, can the SFC license a trading platform and how to supervise it? It's a bit more straightforward for fund managers. This was very well understood and there were certain provisions in terms of what fund managers need to do to protect investor assets and obviously the potential access to assets is a far more immediate for a trader or portfolio manager than in other asset classes. Um, a portfolio manager could not easily abscond with the actual stocks that he is trading, still held by a prime broker and by CCAS in the end. But this is more easily possible in, in, in digital and virtual assets, but there are way, ways to protect that. So that was quite clear. And the licensing journey and then the supervisory journey for trading platforms was a bit more involved, but then also turned out to be possible. Hence, the first and then the second license were issued. Was it time well spent? Was the, was the final product worth all the time and the effort that was put into it? Absolutely. And, I'm, I, and I've said this at a conference in January, I'm really, really proud what Hong Kong has done. Um, because at the time, 
there was a lot of criticism of the framework. And several market participants said it's very onerous, it's very complex. Um, other jurisdictions um, think about this in a different manner, in a more business-like manner. And quite a few entities decided to leave Hong Kong. Now, it would be anyway a bit concerning if people, in a way, run away from regulation or want to not be regulated well. Because the regulatory framework for virtual assets does not have any more stringent requirements than for any other asset class. So there's, there's a catchy phrase, same business, same risk, same rules. That's sort of like the principle that was applied. So the requirement... That's not what they were saying, though. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, yes. the industry? Well. The, the, one, the ones that were complaining. Well, and, and this is important to, to fr differentiate. Those market participants who came in from traditional finance yeah. with experience of being regulated and licensed... Um, they had used no, to light touch. They had no surprise. They had no surprise. So, the the requirements, for example, on a dark pool at an investment bank, are very similar to the requirements on a virtual asset trading platform operator. I mean, uh, there's th that needs to be stressed more. I'd, I'd say. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, but people who came from that kind of environment, maybe an investment bank, had been involved in maybe trading derivatives or a bit more quantitative portfolio trade portfolio management it may be involving um, the challenges of running a duck pool people who maybe came from the buy side but had maybe uh, a quant or stat up background not just a, a long only um, background these people had no hesitation to understand and, uh, and, and adhere to the trading platform framework, licensing framework. It was rather people who came, f who did not have that background, who maybe only had a background in virtual assets, um, who felt that the regulation was heavy-handed, too complex, um, not, in, not, not leading to innovation. So then perhaps they're response can be seen more accurately in the light of a lack of experience and a lack of sophistication, perhaps naivete on, on their part of it. I mean, because what you're describing, I mean, I'm, I'm, almost seeing, I'm almost hearing shades of what I was hearing in 2006 when hedge funds were saying to, was it Alexa Lam at the time at the SFC? Saying to her, and, and she said this at a, Hong Kong Securities Institute event that I attended, uh, again, 06, 07, Singapore does not require this of hedge funds. And her response was the SFC wouldn't budge. They stood their ground. They said, fine, then go to Singapore. And it, it turned out that it served Hong Kong well, because not long after that, the global financial crisis happened. And I won't say Hong Kong was unscathed, but it could have been worse. You know, it could, it could always be worse. So, And that's, if, if I may, may, may use that, that's a great analogy. Because if you look back at the 12, past 12, 18 months and everything that has happened, and what has happened 
was really dramatic because people got hurt and real people lost real money. But none of the failures, bankruptcies happen in Hong Kong. And quite a few of them actually happen in jurisdictions that, that took a much more light touch approach. Um, now, you see a jurisdiction like Singapore, who now has issued a consultation and by all intents and purposes seems to be really following on the footsteps of what Hong Kong did four years ago. And they're changing their framework and what seems to be coming out is very, very similar to the framework Hong Kong issued four years ago. So that has two or three um, effects. One, that Hong Kong was able to protect the investors. Two, Hong Kong has a enabled a framework that is conducive for institutional investors. As an institutional investor, I can only deal with a licensed and regulated counterparty. Three, um, Hong Kong has a framework that while now is being finessed and potentially widened and expanded, is stable, has provided a stable framework to running a business. Because if you start a business and operate a business, you need to be aware of the framework under which you operate. And that, to a large degree, has been unchanged since the framework was launched. Whereas if you're in another jurisdiction, if you start your business under one framework and that suddenly dramatically changes, your business strategy might not work anymore. Your business might not be feasible anymore. And it's not the case that in all, all circumstances you can just relocate your business to a different country. You might not, the staff might have families and, and, and not be able to relocate that easily. And there's always, in, in the institutional finance world, there's always a great emphasis on trust and perception. And you do not want to be seen as an entity that frequently changes its headquarters, frequently relocates. That doesn't lead to an image of stability. No, no, it doesn't. It's no confidence. Again, it's long been said, progress is slow in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. but it's stable. Mm -hmm. Singapore is a bit faster, but they have a state-led development model. We tend to leave things more to the market, and the market tends to adopt the wait-and-see approach of let's pick and choose the best aspects from around the world and apply them mm -hmm to the extent that they serve our purposes, to, to our needs. So when we talk about stability and predictability, then what is the danger that, that a place like Dubai faces, where they seem to have given the crypto community everything they want, light touch, some might even say self-regulation, cynics would say, Light touch regulation, self-regulation means no regulation. Mm -hmm. What are the dangers then that a place like Sing uh, Dubai faces where they've set it up on such short notice, but they don't have that history of um, regulatory development and sophistication? That's not to say the people there are unsophisticated. They've hired the best people from around the world. 
but uh, they don't have that history of, of deliberation, that in, in, that in a desire to put themselves on the map, be the first in every category to make a name for themselves, they seem to have gone too far too quickly. So again, from the standpoint of stability, what are the dangers they face? I don't necessarily want to slag off other jurisdictions. No, but, but in terms of what can we learn from a on a principal basis? Exactly. On a principal basis, I think um, other places tried, because you mentioned it, the self-regulation, letting the industry self-regulate, and that to a large degree has failed. Um, the dangers, obviously, again, are from the perspective of investor protection, because regulation... All the regulation that is in place right now exists for very specific purposes. Quite often regulation is there because sometime in the past something has happened. This might be public knowledge, it might not be public knowledge, but usually regulation exists because people were fraudulently cheated out of money or assets. And the regulator is there to protect that. So. When you set up an environment where you invite people who maybe don't see the value of regulation or don't necessarily want to be complying with regulation, you might invite people that are not interested in building a stable and, and secure environment. Because that's what you want, right? You want responsible innovation that is compliant, that is constructive, forward-looking, but also ensures that it complies with, with regulation. There's, from when I started first covering this as a journalist for Thomson Reuters, uh, I wouldn't say I was the first journalist to cover it, but I was one of the first. But again, as I said to you, the narrative of the last decade was financial crime money laundering. And that was inextricably linked to crypto. And Bitcoin was, a see, was seen intrinsically as a vehicle for money laundering and, and terrorist financing. And, and that stigma hasn't gone away. Now, it isn't so much the trade or the transfer of transactions in crypto. Now they're looking more at the mining. But, but, but that's a whole other discussion. The industry has veered more towards, again, light touch or no regulation because they want an emerging industry to blossom, to reach fruition. Un understandable. The position, and I think people understand this now after the crypto winter of 2022, 2023, and, and all the other scandals that have emerged over the, you know, you know it's 2009. Crypto is no longer that young. There needs to be a balance. You can't be a de facto member of the financial system without some kind of regulation. So with that in mind, how do you balance the trend to, to digitalization while putting forward sound regulations, but also encouraging innovation? Because the rabid anarcho-libertarian advocates of crypto, and they were much louder a decade or so, 10, 15 years back than they are now, because all the scandals, you know, they should put egg on their face. They say there should be no regulation, and there's still some, some chorus of that, but, uh, but that, that's always balanced, right, between sound regulation but not choking off innovation in business. 
thank you for that question. F fantastic. And, and you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, when you think of the environment under which it was created, the great financial crisis, quantitative easing, that's when Bitcoin was created. And the idea was to create a payment system that is not under control of any, any central entity. There's no central bank that can print money or play with interest rates. Um, and one of the goals was disintermediation. And now we're talking about all these intermediaries coming to play. But as you said, um, the whole history of failed institutions, probably starting with Mount Gox, not, not the first one, but the most prominent, and then leading up to FTX last year, has shown that you need intermediaries, at least for the on-ramp of, of fiat to, to crypto. Um, you need intermediaries to provide products and services. And these need to be regulated because as soon as you manage clients' money, you need to adhere to certain regulation. And it's very interesting because in the past weeks and months, I've had many conversations with um, people who come to this asset class, who weren't in the asset class maybe a year or two ago. These really are seasoned professionals out of traditional finance who see an opportunity. They want to be part of this. They see the promises and, and potential of the asset class. But they come with a very, very different mindset than your, your anarchists or evangelists have. And to them, it's very, very clear. You need regulation to bring in institutional money. A hedge fund manager, an asset manager, an insurance company will not even entertain a conversation with you unless you can show your license and regulate it. Um, we also need... Is that not dangerous when you've got insurance companies dabbling in this? Good point. So insurance companies need to generate a certain amount of yield, don't they? Because they need to be able to pay out the premiums. So insurance companies... They're interested in the appreciation, which they'll then convert back into fiat currency. Which will pay their pre, which will pay their policies and their shareholders. Sure, um, but if and if if you have, but it's such a speculative asset and it's non-traditional, sure. so sure. should they be in it? Sure. So, correct. So let's think a step further. If you, in an institutional manner, you introduce the tools that institutions need, for example, for for risk management. So you were talking about uh, plain vanilla options, put call, futures forwards, swaps. Um, the basics at this point. Very basic. Very basic, but a toolkit to manage risk. And we're not talking about ridiculous 50 times leverage or even 100 times leverage. We're talking about proper risk management. Um, even the most seasoned traders I've seen uh, who do this professionally wouldn't go beyond five or six times leverage. So you provide this to an insurance company, a traditional portfolio manager, asset manager, and they might come up with a strategy that is actually an options strategy, a very traditional volatility strategy. Um, they're able to generate six, eight percent yield per year. That's great. That's enough. And now we've abstracted away from crypto. We've abstracted away from 
How do you do custody? How do you protect your private key? Do you have enough randomness when you create your private key? How do you do custody? What do you do if you lose a private key? We're talking about a completely different field now. And this is how I think we need to engage with institutional asset class. Now, you mentioned some very interesting points. Um, I firmly believe that regulation doesn't really stifle, inhibit, or even kill innovation. So regulation really is not only necessary, but is going to be the key enabler of this asset class and is going to be the future of this asset class. Because when we have a stable regulatory framework, and many jurisdictions in this world, Hong Kong isn't the only one, of course, are working towards that and establishing that, that will lead to um, institutional adoption and that will lead us out of the current bear market. So... You're right, digitalization is here and it affects many different areas of our lives. And that is also something that is above and beyond the pure trading of cryptocurrencies because the technology itself isn't yet applied to its full opportunity or its full extent. And there's many different areas in our lives that are above and beyond just financial markets where this technology will make a big difference. Oh, certainly. Certainly, I mean, in terms of one of the simulations I've seen is that uh, you might, if the hospital authority were fully utilized the DLT technology, you you may well see fewer mistakes made. Absolutely. Of course, any any you no know, system is uh, infallible as so long as people are part of it. Uh, and some of my professors in law school used to say, "There's nothing is foolproof to a sufficiently talented fool." <laughs> but but let's take that example. There's a fantastic example. So obviously, let's say your medical records and and your current results of a current doctor's visits are in some form codified on some form of blockchain. Yeah, let's take um, COVID vaccination records. Yeah, yeah. For, for example. Yeah. Now, you obviously would need regulation around who is able to create that, who is able to modify it if, if you get another vaccination. and Who's able to see it, such as insurers. Or... Exactly. So if that was a free fall and there would be... Um, bad actors involved, that's not something that anybody would want. So that's a very good example of why we need regulation around it and why regulation really sets the framework in, in which to operate. Yeah. No, good, good point. There are, there are multiple uses of that technology. So something you've shared in the past with us is that you think Hong Kong is ahead of Singapore and Dubai as a fintech and digital asset hub. Um, could could you elaborate on that? That is is it just Singapore is a common law jurisdiction, so are we. A lot of money is flowing there. They when they put their minds to something, they get it done. But again, that's because the state driven approach, which by comparison makes Hong Kong look lazy and falling behind. Or is it the case that Access to the China market trumps everything. Thank you for the question. One of my favorite topics. Um, and surely, one of the areas where Singapore is 
ahead and doing really well is marketing because they're able to pull together um, the government, the regulator, the market and go on roadshows almost across the world to promote Singapore. But no one's been approved and everyone's on provisional, so... Sure. Yeah. Sure. They get the waiver permits, but it doesn't instill, again, what we were saying about that, that sense of stability and, 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 and confidence. Um, and the feeling is right now that doesn't exist in Asia, that crypto cash of questionable provenance, uh, and not this is just me, all representative parties have said this, is flooding to the UAE, it's flooding to Dubai. So is that not a signal, are markets not telling us something? Well, so in 2019, like I said, there was a lot of criticism for the Hong, to the Hong Kong regulator about the framework. Um, we've seen how that played out, not unexpectedly so, that um, low-touch jurisdictions faced the brunt of the failures in the past 12 and 18 months. So Hong Kong really has established itself as the center of stability and accountability as well. Um, again, if now people leave a jurisdiction and go to another one where they feel there's less regulation, it begins the question, what kind of market participants are these? And are they going to be able to engage with institutional investors, banks, um, brokerages? And I doubt so. And I fear that what we've seen play out over the past 12, 18 months will repeat itself. Because when you look at the, let's say, the last 100 years of what happened in equities, what happened in commodities, what happened in FX, what happened in credit, it's almost like um, an up and down. Um, there's cycle theory that things keep on repeating themselves, events repeat themselves. And what we've seen during the great financial crisis, largely caused by real estate slash credit slash CDOs and CDOs squared and cubed and so on. That was just another permutation of things that happened 15, 20 years before and before that and before that. And we had crisis in 1912 and crisis in 1920 and so on and so forth. So everything's variation on a theme. Yes. It's just, just a new asset class. Um, so therefore, most jurisdictions, top tier jurisdictions like the UK, Switzerland, Europe, the US, really take the approach of we need solid regulation, solid rules by which to play. And these, by, by large degree, are the same rules to abide in, in, in other asset classes. If I'm a credit trader, I have to adhere to a lot of rules. It's the same as, as, as in, in digital assets. That's something that isn't really stressed, because when you're a student, to make your life easy, you study things in a discreet manner, in isolation, in a compartmentalized fashion. And you you don't see the interconnectedness between different fields. Um, and I, I don't know if that's deliberately done, but then when you get older, and, and you, you start to see, okay, but... People are, you know, people may, again, 
you study securities regulation, you study futures regulation, and studying the U.S., you see the acts were written about the same time with the same language. It's only with the passage of time, maturity, and a sense of discernment that you develop, get a sense of how the world works, that you start to say, okay, people are playing games on the futures side to affect the present stock price, or, or vice versa. So that that really do, doesn't sink in, but I think that that needs to be that needs to be emphasized. You've also shared that it's more meaningful to talk about virtual uh, digital assets rather than cryptocurrencies or virtual assets or digital commodities. People use those terms interchangeably. Mm-hmm. What? Why? Why? Why the more expansive term? Mm. I think the real opportunity is in digital assets, and that encompasses, includes cryptocurrencies, but is a lot more. So when you look at cryptocurrencies, varies every day, but we have about twelve to 14,000 different coins and tokens out there. Most of them are borderline meaningless. Um, recently attended a conference at Bloomberg and they start with about a thousand and they filter out until they're about 50 coins. That's probably right. Um, and even, of any meaning or value? Yes, yes. And those are the ones they look at um, to produce their index. And those are the ones that they show uh, in, in their terminal if, if people look at it. Um, even then, you might struggle to really find a use case for every single one of those. Of course, there's white white papers, and of course, there's interesting protocols and teams behind some of them, at least. But often, protocols and, and solutions that I see are looking for a problem to solve. There's no problem that they're actually solving. One. Two, quite often... It's not clear how they will ever commercialize it, how they will ever make money. And that's that's a key, right? Any entity needs to make money. It needs to be commercialized. Now, why digital assets? Um, <clears throat> there are indeed in this world areas where there is a problem. So often price finding is not very transparent or there might be very little liquidity in the market. So let me give you an example. Let's assume you owned a property on Bali. Let's assume, for whatever reason, you needed liquidity. Now, the only option today you have is you can sell it. Well, of course, you can rent it out via Airbnb, but if you want to sell it, the price finding of a property in Bali isn't very transparent and you would probably only be able to sell it to someone who is actually on Bali or using a property agent on Bali to purchase that property. However, if you were able to say, let's take the next 10 years of income stream out of that property, you're able to tokenize that income stream and you're able to list that token on a platform. Now, what you're doing is you're not relinquishing of the title or ownership of that property, at least 10 years plus, but you're getting immediate liquidity. The second part, what you're solving for is you're enabling investors who don't necessarily 
usually have access to an income like that. Um, an income that probably would be yielding anywhere between 8 and 12%. So if you have an 8 to 12% yielding investment that is completely uncorrelated to the market, it doesn't matter whether the Hang Seng goes up or down, um, you have really solved the problem because a lot of people would be very happy you with... You've created your own market. Yes. And you've given access to this uncorrelated let's make it in the middle, 10% yielding investment. And there might be an investor who sits in somewhere in Latin America, for example, who will be very happy to have access to uncorrelated assets, retail-based assets, um, yielding 10%. So you're solving two problems, right? You're solving your immediate liquidity issue and you're solving for an investor who gets access to a uncorrelated yielding asset. And this is what we talked about earlier. You're really fixing a problem. You're addressing a problem. Now, this has nothing to do with any cryptocurrency per se. This is taking a real-world asset, tokenizing in the same way you could create an, an SPV or you could, you could list it in some form, but cheaper, quicker, more accessible, um, and creating a market over. And that's what I think where the real opportunity lies. The purest long ghost, I mean, this is not going to debate. Should, should crypto and digital assets even be viewed as part and parcel of fintech? Some would say yes, some would say no. Some would say it is one of the pillars of fintech. It's an important pillar of fintech and it shouldn't be overlooked. But the fintech discussion is, is far broader financial technology has actually been around for a very long time. If we look back, well, I mean, my, my former employer, Thomson Reuters, enabling uh, farmers to send uh, orders for, you know, agricultural contracts by a telegram. Absolutely. In the 19th century. That was the fintech of its day. Of course, then there's the distinction between those old-fashioned forward contracts and, you know, futures contracts and that the former are, the former entail actual physical delivery of the commodity in, 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 in question. I'll give you one more example. Um, so I started my career, as you correctly pointed out, with Accenture. Our client was Deutsche Börse, which has a spot market called Citra and a derivatives market called Eurix. And at that time, um, one of the largest, not the largest um, fixed income futures contract is um, a contract on, on a German government bond called the Bund Future. Uh, and the life in London had a very strong hold of that. Trading in the Bund Future was happening almost exclusively in London. I remember it was, it was the mid-2000s. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So our client wanted to get that back. So they over multiple years, got an electronic trading system delivered by Accenture, designed and delivered by Accenture, um, that was fully automated. What they then, what that enabled them to do is to say, okay, the next six months, no fees. Trading, no fees. Life couldn't compete with that. They were still doing an open outcry market. They had to pay the people, right? They could not say no fees. Guess what? After six months, almost 98% of the volume in the Bund future was back uh, in Frankfurt. 
on the electronic trading system. And that, of course, is sticky. Once the liquidity is there, it's sticky. And then you can reintroduce fees and people will still stay there and trade with you. And that's a very good example, like your example, with what your former employer, Thomson Reuters, did of applying financial technology, solving a real problem and making people's lives better, cheaper, faster. Next question goes to the... Well, this will be of interest to the AML and financial crime compliance crowd. So on February 20th of this year, the SOC published its consultation paper on the proposed regulatory requirements for virtual asset trading platform operators, the ATPs, that it licensed. The paper delineated the regulators' views and proposals on requirements for VATPs to be regulated in the new licensing regime for virtual asset service providers, VASPs, one of the acronyms of this space. Under the Anti-Money Laundering and Counterterrorism Financing Ordinance, AMLO, which was originally passed in 2011-2012, amended in recent years, Chapter 615 of the Laws of Hong Kong, as well as under the Treatment of VATPs regulated under the existing licensing regime, Securities and Futures Ordinance, the SFO. So why is this happening now and what will it mean for compliance and legal staff at financial institutions when the VASP regime becomes effective on June 1st? So, yeah, that's the perennial question. What does it mean to compliance? And so the current framework as you correctly pointed out, the VATP framework was, since it was launched, has been a voluntary framework. So people can volunteer to become licensed under this framework. Why would you do so? Again, to be able to interact with institutional investors. Um, now, there's obviously the recognition with a regulator that there are other entities that are conducting their business in Hong Kong or to the Hong Kong public that aren't licensed and regulated. And at this point, maybe to point out, because there's sometimes a misconception in the market where people think the regulator doesn't really know what's going on. And having worked there, I can wholeheartedly say the regulator knows exactly what is going on. Uh, they just choose when, when to act. So the recognition of that was that something had to be done. There's also requirements under FATF, for example, there's the travel rule that needs to be implemented. And it was, I would say, unsatisfactory to have people who conduct large sizes, large volumes of trades in Hong Kong that are unlicensed. And there's also the consideration of money laundering and how to prevent it and at least how to act when it occurs and to be able to, to freeze accounts and assets and so on and so forth. Um, which then led to the development to require licensing under the AMLO. So what does that mean as of the 1st of June this year? It's very soon. Um, if you are a platform that is not yet operational in Hong Kong, then you cannot start your business without a license. If you are a pre-existing platform in Hong Kong that's already operational, you then have sort of like a grace period 
during which you can continue to operate, but you need to prepare and file your application to become licensed. And then afterwards, you're deemed while the application is being processed and you're asked a lot of questions and so on, then you're deemed to be licensed. You can still continue your business. The, the main difference here is that this is no longer voluntary. It's no longer optional to be licensed or not. You have to apply for license. You must get licensed or you must seize your business. What does it mean to ask you, answer your question for compliance people? Um, there will be, so what is the obvious effect? More work. Sure. <laughs> um, the obvious effect is going to be there are a number of entities in Hong Kong that are now going to apply for, license, uh, for a license. There are other entities who will look at this, maybe underestimate the amount of effort it takes to obtain a license, and he who will decide that that's not what they want to do, and they will leave Hong Kong. There are indeed quite a lot of entities who are actually actively looking at this and are now coming to Hong Kong to be licensed under this regime. This will lead to more demand for seasoned and experienced compliance professionals and also demand for people who can qualify as a responsible officer, for example. Well, we're, 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 seeing, we're seeing the ads. I mean, many, many would say it's about time when you... When you think about, there are instances where oftentimes it takes a while for Hong Kong to take action. Like for when you consider how many years, how many years insider trading was not a crime. Um, for how many years were money changers and remittance agency remittance firms uh, next to nothing was asked about asked of them from an AML standpoint really 9-11 shocked the world into acting in the Patriot Act but what should I mean we have students in our JD and LLB programs a number of whom envision careers in compliance we have those that are more focused in many cases mid-career professionals in our LLM program in uh, compliance and regulation and um, then, of course, there are those that are already professionals who need to bone up. They need to study about the new subject matter because compli uh, crypto compliance officers are a new thing. But presumably, you you know, they want people with compliance backgrounds who will be brought up to speed on on, on crypto. So with, with with that in mind, what 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 should they learn? How should they learn? What what should they how how best should they prepare for a compliance environment in which digital assets are going to be a growing part, or at the very least a perennial part of, of what they will encounter? I really like that you say compliance professionals who then go into crypto rather the other way around. So I think that's a very important distinction. Because the job description, I mean, an older person may look at that and say, I'm too old for this. I, I, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Younger people may say, okay, fine. It's just something new to learn. I'm, I'm up to that challenge. Uh, 
I, th- I, th- I think older people, older compliance professionals do have something to offer. And it's, it's that window of experience, that, that, that span of time, that historical perspective that uh, we shouldn't give short shrift to. But um, the, the joke is everyone wants a 30-year-old with 20 years of experience. Youth is, youth is still highly prized. And because the technological nature of this, rightly or wrongly, there is a presumption Older folks aren't hip, aren't that hip to it. They're they're not that tech savvy. Sure, I fully agree. But then, people don't change, so the experience of compliance people is invaluable. Let me take one example. We talked about KYC already. Um, market surveillance, very important topic. Um, the alerts that you parameterize in a market surveillance system are no different to any other trading system. Whether you trade dollar-yen or you trade a stock or you trade a cryptocurrency, if you engage in any market manipulative activity, it doesn't really matter what it is that you trade in. So maybe the parameters are slightly different. Maybe you set it up differently. Maybe the execution is a bit different. But the activity itself is no different. The second part is... When you engage with, when you build a compliance team, you want to have that experience. You want to have that gravitas. You want to have the experience of how things have been handled before, what you have seen in real life before rather than just theoretically. Also, when you engage with people like regulators, if it comes to that with law enforcement or even with clients, you want to show that you have the experience. So I fully agree with the notion of having people who have a lot of experience in this field in compliance and then apply it to digital assets. Now, what can people do to prepare? First of all, right off, I would say, read the consultation paper. It's 300, 362 pages, so it's fairly long, but it, com- it contains the whole AMLO. So read that, and that will show people what they don't know. They will read terms that they don't know. They will read a paragraph they completely don't understand. So do some research on that. The revised AML, right? Well, the whole consultation paper is, first of all, a summary. Then um, the previous terms and conditions that now will become guidelines and they're modified. So some, there's some changes there. Um, and then suggested changes to the AMLO specifically for, for uh, digital assets, virtual assets. So read that, try to understand it, go through it, read up if you don't understand it. And then along what you said, get real-life experience in a compliance function, and, and there's many out there. You could be working for, for, for a, a law firm. You could be working in a compliance function in a traditional financial field, or indeed, why not? start your career in a licensed and regulated digital asset business. So the emphasis here is licensed and regulated. So you get that experience of being answerable to a regulator. And often the compliance function is the main function that interacts with a regulator. Usually the regulator would at least initially contact someone in the compliance department for any questions they might have. So that's probably a very good set of experience right, right there. Uh, 
You've been very active with the local chapter of CIFAR, and I know for the longest time asset recovery has been a very uh, lucrative field. Uh, HKU Space um, teaches, I think, a certificate program that um, a friend of mine used to teach in, in this field. Any new developments you'd like to share with us about the group since the group's formation last summer, which was about a year after the UK chapter was created in London. So what, what, what can you tell us about what, what's happening at CIFAR locally? Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Um, so I'm one of the co-founding members. And when we set this up, it was very, very interesting because it was at a time that was very difficult globally. We were in the middle of COVID still. And also for Hong Kong, a lot of people at the time were deciding to leave Hong Kong. Um, there was a lot of uh, negative connotations in, in press and media about Hong Kong and its future. And us getting together and saying we're willing to spend a substantial amount of our spare and free time in a non-for-profit manner to, to build this up, build CIFA up in Hong Kong was very promising for Hong Kong because this is one of the building blocks you need to further bring the digital asset class into an institutional framework. You need, unfortunately, but it's one of the tools you need, you need to enable legal professionals, including judges, to understand what tools are available in case of fraud. So how can you prevent fraud? But you can't prevent all fraud, as we all know. The instruments that are available in other asset classes, especially fiat currencies, are also equities, stocks, and, and bonds are very well understood and can be exercised very fast. But just in case there's a fraud detected involving a cryptocurrency and a lawyer apl applies to a judge to, to, to get an account frozen, well, what does that mean? How do you freeze an account? How do you freeze an address? Because it's peer-to-peer. How do you explain this to a judge? Does the judge actually understand what he's going to write and, and issue? So our aim really, there's Can three... Can you get a Moravia injunction against for crypto? Well, that's exactly what we're working around. What does an injunction mean in crypto, right? Against whom? How do you deliver that? How do you ensure that the entity, let's say it's a trading platform, how do you make sure they understand what the injunction is? Let's, let's make sure that they understand they need to comply with it. Um, how do we generate the awareness of the market participants involved that this is something that is very important? This is something that they need to um, have tools in place to ideally prevent but at least very quickly detect and then follow up. So three main goals, engaging, enhancing, and educating. So engaging with the industry, engaging with the regulators, engaging with the legal system. Enhance, we want to bring best practices, how, how intermediaries, how market participants can set up their operation, their processes, their procedures, the training of their employees to be aware of what to do. And, and also education, um, publish this information. So we've been quite active. We had a, a very good launch event. Um, over 100 people attended and very high quality people. In very, very good discussions all around. 
And we had a media roundtable where we discussed certain topics. And we have a lot of... Remember Jonathan Crompton was telling us about that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so, so he's the, the main co-founder, if you will. He, he brought the idea back to Hong Kong. And the next steps are we want to engage with someone senior from the regulator or from the government. And we have a few other events planned where we, put, we want to introduce people to the tools available, for example, and maybe showcase the strength of different tools. Because it's very interesting. Some people believe that because cryptocurrencies are supposed to be anonymous, that they lend themselves well to illegal transactions. But there have been quite a few cases where law enforcement agencies were able to apprehend criminals, partly based on the information that is available on a blockchain. So it is indeed possible to an astonishing degree to gain information out of um, blockchain transactions. So these are some of the things we want to bring to attention and make sure that people understand. I've done quite a few presentations to law firms in Hong Kong as well, just to make people understand this is coming and you as a lawyer, you will have cases and you will have clients coming to you. And this is what is available in the industry. These are some people you can talk to and this is what you need to look out for. Do, do investigations, do, do, does asset tracing and recovery differ when you're dealing with crypto and digital versus other types of assets such as for fiat currency? The answer is yes and no. Um, so I was, I was, I mean, because I was once told that um, investigations for AML versus investigations for politically exposed persons and and bribery and corruption, are they different? Fully agree with that. So um, as part of our application or any application in this field, you need to... Um, it's just in one, you're looking at the asset, the, the, the funds, in the other, you're looking for the person. Well, exactly. So um, know your client, KYC, in digital assets is no different to know your client's for a bank or for a broker. If you open an account with a Hong Kong broker, they will conduct due diligence and know your client procedures on you as a potential client. The same applies to digital assets, of course. You don't change as a person just because you open an account with a digital asset broker versus a stock broker. Um, the tracing of assets is, of course, different. It's a difference if you say, um, my money was stolen from my account. And in this case, the police force or the JFIU goes and traces that money through different accounts. And if needed, frees them quite quickly. Um, of course, in the blockchain is quite different. Um, you can trace it. Then there's the issue of, for example, tumblers that people use to obfuscate. There's ways around that as well. So you can quantitatively still run statistics on tumblers. Um, then people go to other exchanges, might transfer to a privacy coin that is also built to obfuscate. So there is a lot of technical complications, but I think people underestimate what the tools that are available today to legal and law enforcement agencies can actually do. 
in the time we've got left, is, is there anything you'd like to share with us? Anything you feel we haven't discussed? Anything you'd like to share with our, with our audience? I th I'm very proud of what Hong Kong has achieved. And I, I really say this not because I, I want to talk anyone's book, but because a lot of people took a lot of, to my mind, unfair criticism uh, about the hard work they put in place to create a good, stable and uh, regulatory framework. Um, it's very encouraging to see the speeches by Paul Chan, Julia Leung at the FinTech Week last week, uh, last year, the very recent speeches they have done, the consultation that the, you've mentioned from the SFC that just closed and the potential expansion of the regulatory regime. It's extremely encouraging to see all the participants, especially in the last two weeks, we have um, about five, six events every day at least in, in this past two weeks. Um, and the participants are, are, are very eager. And these are, by and large, really high-quality people. Now, we're not talking about people pushing some dodgy projects or shady businesses. These are seasoned professionals who are eager to get into, into this asset class in Hong Kong. And that's incredibly encouraging. Well, Donald Day, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And to our audience, thank you again. Until next time.